text for today, I want you to have a good, long look at 1 Samuel chapter 16. Or, I was thinking since um, today, today's date happens to be 7-11, maybe I should say I'd like you to have a big gulp of 1 Samuel chapter 16. It just fits on the slide for those with eyes to see that. Otherwise... You can speedily find it, however else. 1 Samuel 16. We start at the top. 1 Samuel 16 says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go and do this? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one I declare to you. Samuel did what the Lord commanded. came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the city came to meet him, trembling, and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves, come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not Look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. I want to talk today about the heart that God looks upon. The heart. The heart is important, of course, as you all know well. The heart is very important. The heart is a vital organ, is it not? You need a healthy heart. So says the Surgeon General and all kinds of stuff like that. And so you should watch your risk factors, you know. I mean, heart disease is still a number one killer. you got to watch out. Now, I'm sort of kidding because uh, not a one of you here interpreted the word heart in that passage. Uh, nor in any passage, like the one that Carol read earlier, uh, who may approach he who has uh, clean hands and, and what? A pure heart. Not a one of you in reading that, hearing that, or reading or hearing these words about how God looks upon the heart. None of you thought literally about, you know, the physical blood pumping organ in your chest. That's not how you read that. Nor do you mean that when you say things like what I put on this slide, when you talk about something, believing something with all your heart, right? Or if somebody's heart was in the right place, or somebody showed a lot of heart. That kid plays with a lot of heart. Or when someone gives the advice of somebody to follow your heart, right? Or you talk about, you know, in my heart of hearts, I I think this. You know, all of these uses... What does it mean? What are matters of the heart? What does it mean to be a 
cold-hearted person, or to have a tender heart, or a hard heart, or to be broken-hearted, or to be completely heartless. So going way, 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 way back, people understood the heart both in its physical sense and and they used it in the metaphorical sense. I mean, people, people even in the ancient world, they didn't, they weren't completely clueless about the heart as an organ. I mean, they knew that you've got this thing in you that's really important, and it can go wrong, and you're in big trouble. Uh, you can't do without it. They knew that all the animals, inside all the animals, they found the same kind of thing, a heart. So they weren't stupid about that. They knew that there's this thing in there, you know, it's um, it's a centralized thing, this central muscle. Maybe they even knew that it's sort of pumping the blood. I don't know. Who knows just the level of their understanding of those times, but they knew that this thing is the, of the utmost important, and it's right dead center kind of. It's in the middle of your chest. It's protected. And so they would use phrases that sort of uh, metaphorically... Uh, related to that, talking about something is at the heart of something, right? It's at the very heart of the operation. It means it's right in the middle. It's really important. And so it, you're talking about something being the heart of something. It's the heart of that operation. Something being in the heart of the city. Jonah talks about the heart of the sea, meaning the, the, right in the, in the middle and the important part of it. So how would we then define this word, then, biblically speaking? What does the Bible mean in talking about the heart? You know, the word is used over a thousand times in Scripture. Throughout the Old Testament books and into the New Testament books, the word heart shows up over and over. And in fact, in some of the verses you probably like the most and know the best, the word heart is featured in those verses. Now, some of the uses of the word heart, as I said, some of the uses are actually about the physical thing. There are some places, they're the minority of places in Scripture where it says heart and it really means the heart. But most of the time, as we would guess, most of the time when the word heart is used, it is in this metaphorical sense. And... It sort of is the same in the Old Testament where they're using a Hebrew word in all those verses where you find it. And in the New Testament when they're using a Greek word. They're using it the same way. And you see the two examples of how it's used. Both the Hebrew word, lave, you shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart. Lave. Or in the New Testament where Jesus says, as it is written, quoting Isaiah there, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And there in Mark, you find that written in the Greek, cardia, cardia. You can see, of course, that this gives this goes into the Latin and gives us the word, the cardio sort of root word for all those medical terms that are associated with the heart and the study of the heart, and treating the heart, and all that stuff. So, I don't have this on a slide, but simply put, say if we're to boil this down and define what the Bible means in talking about the heart, it means something like the inner person, the innermost person. Some verses talk about the inner man. It is the seat of your emotions in the core of your character. 
It's sort of the, the base point for your will, what you want most, what you choose most to do, what you value the most, what you place the highest priorities on, your true thoughts, your true beliefs. The late Norm Geisler, Christian writer, philosopher, apologist, he said the heart is the instrument with which we are supposed to worship God. It is also, he said though, it is also the seat of evil in people. For better or for worse, he said, the heart reflects the whole inner being. Proverbs 27:19 says, as in water a face reflects a face, so the heart reflects the person. As a man thinks in his heart, what? So is he. That's who you are. That's the real you. That's what the Bible means. Now, do you think uh, that that's how people think today? You see, how you regard what really matters about people makes all the difference how you regard people. We're told to regard people a certain way. How we ought to regard them and how we ought not to regard them, think about them, see them, consider them, judge them, rank them, value them. The reason that I think the word heart is the most common um, you know, anthropological term that you get in the Bible for people is because it is considered the most important thing about people. That is the biblical view. That the heart, that, that what I just described... That innermost person, the real true person, that that is what matters. That's the most important thing about us, about any given person. But again, the question, is that really how we think? I mean, is that commonly thought? Is that the predominant belief of people? We all know that it is the natural habit, the natural tendency of people to to unfortunately ignore this thing, the most important thing, to ignore that, to overlook that, and instead to predominantly see and put really inordinate focus on outward things. That's what we're like. That's why the Lord told, told Samuel, here's how it works. Here's the difference in me and you, the people. Man looks on the outward Appearance. That's just what you people are like. It's just part of our nature. We can't help it. We do that. We are tempted always to regard people in a positive or negative light on the basis of the wrong things. On the positive side, you know, we love we, we love all of the great attributes people can have, so we reward those things. We love the beautiful, the talented the wealthy, the capable, the accomplished, the popular, the athletic. This is all the cool stuff that we like in people, so we heap the praise on people who have those things and have them at a high level. And they get their rewards for those things, don't they? They get social payoffs for those things. I mean, they get financial payoffs. They can make their way through life more easily. And naturally, people just... They gravitate. They see that first, and it matters to people. But, of course, 
Is that how God sees people when he looks across the population? Does, is God impressed with those things when he sees those things? He gave all those things to those people. Everything they have, he gave them. Well, I worked for one of them. Yeah, yes, but you were given the ability by God to live and breathe and have your being and whatsoever gifts and talents and abilities that you have and physical capabilities to do what to do that work. And by the way, it's good that people do that work. You're called to to be an industrious person, to take what God gave you and maximize it. So that's good that people have put in whatever work, but but the, but pride is the enemy's lie to make you think, I am responsible in toto for all of this, ever all of my accomplishments. It's me, 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 and only me, and no one but me. Like the man who built his barns, right? And God said, you, my friend, you are a fool. You don't know anything. I can take that stuff. I gave you that, and I can take it away in a split second. God does not consider our abilities primarily. You think, you know, you, you approach God with, look what I've done. Look what I can do. Look at how I rank. Check out my scorecard. Look at my record on things. Check me out. I'm a snappy dresser. Have you seen what I can have you have you noticed? Look at what the people say about me. Here I have a long list of recommendations. Look at the here's some of the praise people have given me. God doesn't care. That in other words, that gets you no status in the presence of God. It gets you nowhere. He how can he be impressed by those things? You, does anyone ever think they will strut into the presence of God and he will be starstruck by them? What's he going to stutter? Oh, oh my gosh. You're really here. It's really you. Can I touch you? Can I get your autograph? Yes, I'm all-powerful and I made the entire universe, but wow. You're that guy that was in that movie. Wow, you hit how many home runs? Wow, the amount of money you made. Woo! God is not impressed. But that's the positive side of what we do to regard people on that account. But there is a negative side, is there not? There is an ugly negative side. These are these were these are equally sinful temptations we have to regard people falsely because we are we're not looking upon the heart. We're looking on the outward things. So the negative side of it is to look not up to some people for the wrong reasons, but down on people. For the wrong reasons, for the shallowest of reasons, how they look, what they've got, what they ain't got, how they dress, the, their, their lack of talents, the fact that they can't do cool things that other people can do. People today sometimes think that they've discovered this terrible notion of all the various bigotries people have, like we've discovered it. Oh my gosh! We need to sound the alarm that this kind of thing happens. And can you believe it? It's actually happened in the past. I read some history, and do you can you do you know what things have happened? This is as old as time, as long as human beings have been on the earth. This is part of the sin nature of people. Our our issue isn't just knowing it and seeing it. We know it. We see it. What to do about it? All through the, the scripture, the Bible, over and over, 
the message comes to people. Do not regard people for these things, these outward things, these shallow things, these petty things. You regard people the way I regard people. You learn to look upon the heart. It is your nature to look on the outward thing. But it is my nature, God says, to look inward. And you must learn to see people like I see people. you got to kind of borrow my eyes to see them correctly. But even in the church, the temptation is always to do that. This is why even in the book of James, the church is to, the apostle says to the church, you know, what you've got to not do or stop doing, he says, is when you are in your meetings with the saints together, gathered with, and somebody shows up there, you look at that person and that person walks in and maybe that person is impressive in some way. Maybe that person walks in and you can tell this person is upper class. This person comes from the important crowd. This is somebody we've heard of or somebody we know or somebody who just looks the part. Attractive person, well-dressed, has the ability, good with people. I like how they talk and express themselves and they seem smart to me. And whatever they've got, whatever they've done, James says, you, you look at that and you immediately, you, you, you shower favors on them. Ooh, we have a special seat for you in the front. Whichever one you want. Can I get you anything? And then, of course, someone else walks in, lacking any of that, right? Unimportant. Unimpressive. A virtual nobody. Nobody important. No one uh, of any regard whatsoever. Maybe they lack many of those things. And you say to that person, um, yeah, this is... Grab some floor in the back. <laughs> Whatever. No, you see, even in the so so even all the years later, I mean the throughout Israel, they're told the prophets say over and over again, the standard rule is you do not show favoritism, you do not show partiality. Do a study on of the phrases, and you'll see it repeatedly. The instructions coming to Israel do not, you will not show partiality to people and yet here they are and here's the church the church of redeemed people who have been called who they've been told by their Lord has told them to not do this but according to the apostle yeah you still got to be reminded because you still have the temptation to do this see the, the point here is that the gospel has the answer to this problem the Bible addresses it from ancient times. Can that apply to now and what, what's going on now and any kind of thing? Of course. It applies always and everywhere. But if people do not understand this, then do you know what the temptation could still be? To address the problem with just more of the same. So so a, a culture that is, that is devoid of biblical orientation... A culture that doesn't comprehend biblical truths will sort of go it alone to try to, to try to solve these problems. Their human nature and the common grace of God will show people hey, there's a lot of wrongs going on. A lot of people get mistreated and, and thought of wrongly. All this, this stuff happens because there's an intuition God puts in people to recognize it and know it. But what to do about it? This is where the church has 
a timeless word for this and cannot imbibe a secular answer, which is no answer at all, which in many cases is just more of the same. We will simply start regarding people. We will just change the uniforms or we'll just switch around, but we're still regarding people. So now I will... I used to, I, when, I was a, when I was a sinner, you know, I would treat the rich guy well and not the poor guy. And that was a sin. And so now, now I've, I've changed. But what is my gospel? What is my moral code now? What is my message? What, is, well, who, what voice am I listening to to solve this problem? The wrong voice would be to say, now I hate the rich guy <laughs> and I will treat the poor guy well. Just because he's the poor guy. And just because he's the rich guy. But you see, I'm still regarding people just for their outward appearance. I do not want to I do not want to do the anti-apostolic uh, message. James says, we heard what James, what the book of James said. Well, what if, what however if the important person came into the early church meeting and he had money and he had status and he was from the upper class and they ran him out of there and said, shame, shame. This church is not for you. This message is not for you. You're bad. This would have also run afoul of the church's mission because God does not look upon that rich guy and that talented guy and that attractive Person and the lady who can dress well and whatever, he doesn't look at them and despise them for that reason any more than he looks at the tattered or diseased or talentless or homely person and despise them for those reasons. You get it? Either way, you are regarding people wrongly. You are looking on the outward appearance and not the heart. You know what happened now in that passage in 1 Samuel. So now many of you know how that ends. He showed up and he's, you know, the prophet. And, and it's interesting that even Samuel has to be put in check because even Samuel, who is a great man, a, one of the, I mean, if you're ranking the, you know, the biblical characters in terms of the heart of each one, if you're looking at them and, and their sort of their greatness, I mean, Samuel is way up there. He, he is, he was revered enough as a man of God in his own time that when he when he shows up at a place it sort of scared the people <laughs> you know remember what they said uh what are you doing here do you come in peace like are we in trouble <laughs> you know Samuel is a great man and yet he had the temptation to take one look at one of Jesse's sons and be struck by what he saw physically be struck by what he saw, the outward appearance, and say, ah, this has got to be my guy. See, he was, Samuel was doing his own talent evaluation. When he, all he saw was the first one, Eliab, and he says, ah, here's my first round draft choice right here. My top pick. I, I, you know, I know what I'm looking at. This, if this ain't a king to be, and Yahweh rebuked him and said, no, 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 no. No, not so fast. Because I see what you see, and I know why you why you think that. But that's not how I see things. 
You know what happened after that? More sons of Jesse came, many of whom impressive in many ways. And and really, in a lot of ways, Samuel saw a lot of guys that could be first rounders in that in that group. But nobody was the right one. No, but none of those guys was the right one. And so Samuel asks, um, say, you got any more sons that I don't know about? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, yeah, there's, uh, I mean, I got the youngest, but, you know, heart playing, heart playing poet out there. He's tending the sheep. He's kind of, he's kind of runt. Bring him in. And what happens when the young man approaches the, the son that wasn't there first? Immediately, the Lord says to Samuel, anoint that young man. That's my guy. It says, it says he comes in. He's, he's ruddy, it says. You know, he's whatever. He's reddish. He's, he's been outside. It says he's handsome, yes, but, you know, he, he didn't look like much of a king. And yet, I mean, I mean Samuel probably thought, this is a low third round their third round pick here. He was the guy. And of course, who was he? He was David. He was David. Oh, well, so was did, did God see something there that Samuel didn't see? You know what God saw? Man looks on the outward appearance. But God saw the heart of this young guy. Was that a worthy heart? Was Did he have... Was, he, was it a good choice? Did he turn out to be a good choice? Well, I don't know. He's the greatest king to ever sit on Israel's throne. And, and he also, uh, God was able to use the man's lyrical capabilities to write the, uh, the poems and songs and hymns uh, for the world to worship the one true God, translated into every language, the Psalms still to this day the most popular of all Bible books, most quoted of all, most beloved of all, and every one of us here have sung the words of so many songs that that were written by that kid. And and, and what made him great? Well, he he was morally perfect. No, we know better than that. We we know his story. He wasn't that, was he? Can a person with the right heart still commit sins? Yes, the person with a good heart will still commit sins. Not might. They will. But what happens thereafter? What is the most, the best known description of David's uh, spiritual condition? Um, The greatest attribute of David in terms of his heart. You all know what it is. It says that David among all the other things he ever was, was a man, what? After God's own heart.